Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, the Appalachian tribe lived in Florida's panhandle when the Spanish arrived in the 1500s. We'll go to Mission San Luis in Tallahassee to explore Appalachian culture. They were known by Indian tribes in South Florida and elsewhere as rich and powerful, and a lot of it had to do with the location here in the Red Hills of Tallahassee. We'll preview the 2016 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium in Orlando. It's a place for history enthusiasts, historians, students, and the general public to congregate, to talk, discuss, network, and really enjoy all things Florida history. And we'll talk about tin can tourists. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. The Appalachian tribe lived in Florida's panhandle and by the 1500s they had developed a sophisticated culture with farming villages and ceremonial centers. Anhyka, the Appalachian capital, was located near present-day Tallahassee. The Appalachian were part of an extensive trade network that extended north to the Great Lakes and west to present-day Oklahoma. The Florida tribe would trade shells, shark's teeth, and smoked fish for copper, mica, and other minerals not found in their native land. Karen Stanford is program supervisor at Mission San Luis Living History Museum in Tallahassee. They were known by Indian tribes in South Florida and elsewhere as rich and powerful, and a lot of it had to do with the location here in the Red Hills of Tallahassee. Uh, the soil's extremely good for growing food. And so you had a um, group of Indians who didn't have to travel with uh, the game, who could remain in place, have enough food, and also have enough food to, you know, and in later years when the Spanish were here, they basically kept St. Augustine alive. They were the breadbasket for La Florida. So it's a very important thing. They had that resource, and they were also fierce warriors, and they were known, known as that too. The first contact that the Appalachian had with Europeans came on July 15, 1528, when Spanish conquistador Panfilo Narvaez and his men attempted to overpower the Florida natives. That attack was successfully repelled. In 1539, Hernando de Soto and his men landed on the Gulf Coast of Florida and traveled through the center of the state, looking for gold and killing any natives they encountered along the way. Hearing that the Appalachian might have gold, the expedition traveled west to Anhyka. This time, the Spanish were able to capture the Appalachian capital. 
The tribe had developed such an effective method of preserving food that they were able to feed DeSoto's 600 men and 220 horses for five months. In the spring of 1540, the Spanish moved on, continuing their search for gold in present-day Georgia. In 1633, two friars established the first Catholic missions in Appalachian territory, and Spanish soldiers soon followed. The Appalachian people became citizens of Spain by accepting Christianity. By 1656, Mission San Luis was established at the seat of Appalachian power, solidifying a religious, military, and economic alliance. In the final decades of the 1600s, Spanish families joined the settlement of 1400 Appalachian at Mission San Luis. As Karen Stanford explains, the buildings of this splendid community were built around a central plaza. Both the Spanish and the Appalachian had this culture of having a central plaza. And you know, the Europeans were really square or rectangular. What they built here was the same sort of plaza, but in a circle, which means that they adopted um, a Native American concept of community. And yet they placed around it both Appalachian structures and uh, European structures. We had a Spanish village, and the first building we reconstructed actually was a Spanish house, a small Spanish house. And uh, that was done by volunteers and staff. Uh, the other buildings were more complicated, so they were built by... Um, the help of big cranes and things like that. So uh, what we were able to do is uh, get a sense of what was around the plaza. Uh, most of the villagers would have lived in small villages by their fields down, down where the stadium is now and all around the mission and would come to the mission for church services or big convocations in the council house. Like before the ball game, there would be big ceremonies and that kind of thing. And then the last big living history structure that we constructed was the uh, fort and its surrounding palisade. So with its palisade, it's a castillo, and it was built with a palisade. It was a two-story blockhouse so that in the event that they were raided, the whole village could go from the top of the hill, could go into the uh, safety of the barricades. A Franciscan church and a defensive fort were built to serve both the native and Spanish occupants of San Luis de Talamali, but the most impressive structure in the town was the Apalachee Council House. A reconstruction of the Council House is part of the Mission San Luis Living History Museum in Tallahassee. I always tell groups when I'm walking around, it's like to just take that concept out of your head of primitive because there's nothing primitive about that structure. Structurally, it's very sound. We've had structural engineers look at it. And the way the large central timbers are placed in the ground and how the sporting timbers lay over them is a very sound building and it is incredibly Maybe they didn't have a system of um, meters and feet and that sort of thing, but everything was very precise. Um, people will see it when they come here, and it's an absolutely beautiful structure covered in thatch with a large central opening where in days when we could have a fire, which we can't do that now, but the smoke from the chimney would have been seen for miles and miles as people are traveling from St. Augustine to Mission San Luis. So you have just, like I said, a very large structure, probably could hold two to 3,000 people during big events, uh, a higher bench for the chief and his advisors, and then rings of benches, lesser notables. The Appalachian Council House is a large, round building with a thatched slope roof that touches the ground. An oculus in the ceiling illuminates the interior of the structure, where Karen Stanford says thousands of people could gather. When people come here, they like 
It's a beautiful, peaceful site and has got a lot of spirituality about it. But it's the council house that sticks out in your mind because you may have seen the fort in, in St. Augustine or other forts. You may have seen other churches. You may have seen little dot, waddled and daub Spanish houses. But this is the one that's going to really knock your socks off. And the funny thing is, too, it's a large building from the outside, but you don't anticipate the volume it contains until you walk into the building. So there's always that aha moment when the school kids take the little short door and their faces come up and they see and it's like, it takes their breath away. Benches surrounding the central space in the council house allowed the Appalachian chief to entertain visitors traveling from great distances and provide them with sleeping accommodations. There were little sleeping alcoves, and uh, as people were passing through, both Native American, um, um, fellow Appalachian or people that they were friendly with, or Spanish, um, like merchant mariners and that sort of thing, they could stay there. And they had a provision uh, enacted by the Spanish uh, government saying they could only stay there for three days because they didn't want a lot of interaction with outsiders and the Indians because they f- felt they might be corrupted or taken advantage of. So you could stay three days, you could petition to stay longer, but uh, they tried to keep people not feeding on the hospitality of the Appalachian. San Luis de Talamali was the western capital of Spanish Florida from 1656 to 1704 until the residents decided to burn their settlement to the ground. The site was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1966, the first year such designations were made. The site wasn't developed into a living history museum until much later. Karen Stanford. The state of Florida acquired a site in 1983, so archaeology could happen. And so what they began doing over that period of time is discovering that there was a lot more here than just the fort, which everybody knew the fort was here. Because even though it was burned, there's a lot of mass, and people always knew. They never, it wasn't a lost mission. And so, but what they discovered was it was a far more ambitious than than just the fort, basically. Uh, I remember Bonnie McEwen, who is the research director, Dr. McEwen, said that when they first found the convento, which is the priest's residence, they thought it was the church because they didn't expect a big church to be here. And then when they continued excavations, they found right next door was the Franciscan church, which actually was the same size as the uh, church in St. Augustine at the time. So they realized that this was more than just a mission, a small mission. And then when they discovered the council house, which is the uh, chief's uh, main, not residence, but where he held power, uh, it is the largest building discovered archaeologically in the south. And it is probably the premier building here because, again, you're not going to see that kind of structure anyplace else. And we're the only reconstructed mission in the southeast as well. So what we did, once we had the evidence, both from Dr. Han's work and Dr. McEwen's work, and Dr. Han was our historian, uh, we could start deciding what we would build. In addition to the impressive Appalachian Council House, a spacious church was reconstructed at the Mission San Luis site to show how the converted Appalachian and their Spanish neighbors worship together. It's basically a large, has a large nave with the altar, and there's actually, one of the interesting things I found is that there's a pulpit with a sounding board above it that the uh, bishop uses when he comes over, uh, the current bishop, when he comes over and does Mass in, in December. And then there's a, uh, we found uh, burnt, broken pieces of limestone, and that, uh, we've recreated that uh, baptismal font and that sort of thing. We know there was a choir loft, because that was in the records, where the uh, Native American men and boys would uh, sing, and were said to have the voices of angels when um, they, people heard them. And so you had a, a really neat structure that no, no uh, benches or chairs. They stood for the entire Mass, and these were not short Masses. Uh, basically, um, 
The priest, of course, would stand up front and talk to his flock. Lots of pictures. You had a fairly largely illiterate population, and that included Spanish and Appalachian. So you had pictures to sort of illustrate the lesson. By 1702, England and Spain were at war. The English began destroying Catholic missions in Florida as a way of undermining Spanish control. With English forces approaching San Luis de Talamali, the Spanish and the Apalachee evacuated the women and children from their shared settlement. They knew that the end was near. They'd been seeing it since 1702, when uh, the Siege of St. Augustine. And they had heard news about other missions being captured, uh, the priests and the Indians being put to death or sent into slavery. They knew that they were being the last one because they were more defensible. We had the fort and the Castillo here. But one interesting thing about that, in the spring of 1704, the records show that for the first time in Sent, well, thousands of years, the Appalachians did not plant corn. So they knew they wouldn't be here. They could be here to sow it, but not to reap. So that's a really telling thing that, you know, that they literally knew that something was going to happen and it wasn't going to be good for them. So what they did in advance of uh, Governor Moore and his Creek allies, they burned the entire mission to the ground. Uh, the Castillo is probably the last building burned. On July 1st, 1704, the Spanish and their Apalachee allies burned down Mission San Luis to keep it from being captured by the English. Some of the Apalachee fled to St. Augustine with the Spanish, others surrendered to the British. Another group traveled west to Pensacola, continued to French-controlled Mobile, eventually settling in Louisiana. The dispersed Apalachee were lost to history until the 1990s when records uncovered in Rapidus Parish, Louisiana, identified a small group of people there as descendants of Apalachee from Florida's Mission San Luis. Karen Stanford. The reason we know that there are Appalachians from this hillside is that the parish records, they remain Catholic, and the parish records said that they were from here and they identified themselves as Appalachian. And that's exciting because the chief of the tribe, which is is not federally recognized, but he and his family have come to visit, support what we do, and are delighted with what they see. Mission San Luis has a variety of educational outreach programs, some of which are aimed at Spanish-speaking students to provide them with a link to Florida history as well. We have one program called Herencia, which is actually aimed at uh, Spanish students. Uh, we usually have a, a Spanish educator. Uh, and we do a lot of outreach to Quincy, which has a, a, a large migrant worker population. And so even though the kids are learning English quite well, it's nice that you know, they're being um, taught that their culture and their history is, is evident in this site because they may not know that. And it's, a, it's kind of almost esteem building as well. Since 2009, Mission San Luis has had a more accessible entrance from Tennessee Street, also known as Highway 90. A visitor center was constructed to provide all guests with a more comprehensive history of the site. The visitor center itself is wonderful um, because it allows us, we have a theater that can seat 125, which means we can accommodate at least two busloads of children, uh, and they get to watch the orientation film, and there's also uh, an expanded exhibit area that they can look at the objects and artifacts and drawers and, and get a better orientation to what they're going to see outside because outside is a living history museum, and it needs a little explaining so that you kind of know what you're going to get when you walk out on the landscape. So right now, I think the proudest thing I have about this whole uh, new facility is that our visitors are much better informed uh, about what they're going to see and how they're going to interact with what they see out on the landscape. Karen Stanford is Museum Program Supervisor at Mission San Luis in Tallahassee. 
Residents burned the mission to the ground in 1704, but the community's buildings have been reconstructed as a living history museum. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program. Find out where you can see our television series, Florida Frontiers. Find great books on Florida history and culture and much more. While you're there, become a member of the Florida Historical Society to receive our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly, discounts at museums throughout the country, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The 2016 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held May 19th through 21st at the Embassy Suites by Hilton in downtown Orlando. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, tell us about this upcoming conference. Every year, the Florida Historical Society hosts the annual meeting and symposium in a different region throughout Florida. Uh, in recent years, we've visited Pensacola, Fort Lauderdale, Tampa, St. Augustine. We try and travel around the state. Uh, recently, in fact, we hosted a meeting aboard a Carnival cruise ship sailing in the path of discovery following Ponce de Leon's expedition in 2013. But this year, as you mentioned, we'll be right smack dab in the middle of central Florida in wonderful Orlando. This year's theme is actually Citrus to Tourism to Tech, Visions of Paradise, question mark. Uh, it really encapsulates the diverse and ever-changing history of uh, the Central Florida region. Uh, now, the major thrust of our annual meetings uh, is the academic presentations. But outside of that, it's a place for history enthusiasts, historians, students, and the general public to congregate, to talk, discuss, network, and uh, really enjoy all things Florida history. This year, we have over 60 presenters that will be giving talks and roundtable discussions. And the topics are as varied as Florida history. This year, we'll have uh, some experts speaking on Paleo-Indians in Florida, colonial Florida history, territorial Florida history, uh, Florida governors, Florida in the First World War, Jackie Robinson and his role in Florida history, all the way up to the 21st century. And we'll have some folks talking about digital methods for interpreting Florida history and so much more. Now, each morning of the conference, these concurrent sessions will take place, but what do the conference attendees get to do in the afternoons? Well, despite the popular notion that historians just like to stay inside and read books, we actually like to get out when we visit a lot of these areas and allow our attendees to get the uh, a full kind of historical view of what uh, the areas that we're visiting are really like. So in the afternoons, the Florida Historical Society features tours of museums and historic sites. Uh, this year in Orlando, we're fortunate enough to have the Orange County Regional History Center uh, giving us a behind-the-scenes tour of their archive and museum. We'll also have a walking tour of historic downtown hosted by uh, Rick Kilby, 
We'll visit the Wellsbuilt Museum of African American History and Culture. We'll also have a bus and boat tour of historic Winter Park, which will include a visit to the Albin Palaszczuk Museum of Sculpture uh, Gardens and the Hannibal Square Heritage Center. And we'll also have, like I said, the historic boat tour as well throughout Winter Park. And then we'll round out the conference itself with a picnic at the Fort Christmas Historic Park, which is actually located in East Orange County. So we're really going to cover the Central Florida area, not just downtown Orlando. Great. Well, what are some of the other special events that will be part of the conference? Well, on the opening day of our session, we have the opening plenary session, and we're really fortunate to have Speaker Joy Wallace Dickinson. Now, she is the history columnist for the Orlando Sentinel newspaper. She'll be giving a talk entitled The Mysteries of Orlando's Past BD, and the BD stands for Before Disney. On Thursday afternoon, we'll have our annual awards luncheon, which we do every year, and we'd like to take time to honor a lot of the people who are involved in Florida history and and recognize some of their contributions to the study of Florida history. On Friday evening, we have an annual banquet dinner. Uh, The featured speaker this year will be broadcast journalist Bob Keeling. Uh, He's also a historic preservation advocate and author, and he'll be presenting a a talk entitled Uncovering Florida's Pre-Disney Visionaries. Now, Bob also published a book entitled Tupperware Unsealed. Brownie Wise, Earl Tupper, and the Home Party Pioneers, which is actually being made into a major motion picture starring Sandra Bullock. So if we're lucky enough, I'm sure he'll uh, tell us a little bit about that process as well. Great. Well, sounds like a lot going on at the conference this year. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Hope to see you there. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The 2016 Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium will be held May 19th through 21st at the Embassy Suites by Hilton in downtown Orlando. Registration information for the conference is online at myfloridahistory.org. Everyone is welcome to attend. Come together. This is Florida Frontiers. Long before Disney World, SeaWorld, and Universal Studios, tin can tourists came to Florida. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com has more. The biggest ways that tin can tourists were different is that tin can tourists were ordinary Americans. Most of the tourists who'd come to Florida before the 1920s were wealthy people, the elite. But tin can tourists, well, just about any American could afford a Model T and perhaps to modify it a little bit and turn it into a camper. 
And so the 10 can tourists were people who could maybe get a month or two off and travel down to Florida and have a little bit of an adventure. That was Dr. Tracy Revels, professor of history at Warford College in Spartansburg, South Carolina. We spoke about the phenomenon of tin can tourists. Today, you can't drive on the interstate between large cities or along state highways leaving smaller towns and communities without seeing RV campsites. Clubs and social organizations that build communities of RV owners across the country are easy to find on the internet or through your local AAA office. Year-round, families get into their campers and RVs to enjoy the outdoors and stay at campsites that cater specifically to them. Now, if you can imagine one of these sites today, imagine instead custom-built campers or RVs and imagine people fixing their Model T cars up for this kind of activity during the 1920s. These were the tin can tourists. Dr. Revels tells me what they brought with them on these trips. Things to cook with, cooking pots, maybe a tent or a little bedroll of some sort, uh, probably some good hiking shoes because they get out and walk around a lot. But basically just whatever we might imagine ourselves carrying if we were going to sleep in our cars, if you just think of the 1920s versions of, of that, would be what they would take with them, and hopefully a good map or two as well. In places like Florida, there were many natural attractions that tin can tourists could visit while they were at these tin can campsites. With their own cars and the affordability of visiting natural landscapes or state parks, the tin can tourist experience was open to many more Americans than the more affluent leisure experience that defined tourist travel at the end of the 19th century. If they traveled at all, it was only to local spots, like maybe to a local uh, amusement park or something. It was the car that really opened up being able to go a long distance and stay for a longer time for average Americans because they simply couldn't afford the train tickets and the long hotel stays that would have come before. And another thing with the cars was they simply would sleep in their cars or pitch a tent, and they could do it pretty much in any field or by the side of the road anywhere in the state of Florida back in those days. The 1920s and early 1930s was really a great time to be an American seeking an adventure on the road in Florida and arriving in your tin can camper. Henry Ford made the automobile affordable, and with this, travel and tourism became more democratic for most Americans. One did not have to be affluent to travel due to the cost of railroad tickets and fancy hotels like Henry Flagler's Breakers in Palm Beach. It also brought people into the small towns and communities of Florida. As long as there was a road, a tin can tourist could travel and get there. There were a lot of little mom-and-pop hotels that sprang up along the Florida roads catering to tourists. There were also what they called tourist camps, which would grow up, especially in central Florida and around Tampa and Miami, that would offer some real basic amenities, maybe a bathhouse, place to take a shower, uh, maybe some different sorts of eating facilities, even a bandstand and a place to have a local dance. So often, tin can tourists would congregate in these auto camps or tourist camps, and that would bring a lot of stimulus to the local economy. One thing that's interesting, however, is that some communities in Florida actually debated whether or not they wanted 
can can tourists there or not because there was also a fear that maybe these people wouldn't really be very nice people that they'd be riffraff or they would be um you know thieves or something so there was a good bit of debate is is this money worth the risk and some towns said yes and some towns said no and obviously the towns that said yes were the towns who did a lot better of harvesting the economic benefits of tin can tourism. That was Dr. Tracy Revels. I interviewed her and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida Podcast. You can find it on iTunes and the internet. I am Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen online or as a podcast. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. The television series version of Florida Frontiers is airing all over the state. Find out more at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, the Florida Council of Arts and Culture, and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.